So today we have a guest preacher. His name is Alex Wallington. He is a college minister. He's a minister who serves on the college campus of USC. Um, I believe he's been here before, but before I invite him up, let me ask, um, has anybody ever had a concussion? Anybody? Okay, like five of you will relate, but so hear me out here. So we had a presbytery meeting a few months ago, and we were hosting for the first time, and people were coming in. I was trying to be Mr. Friendly Guy. I was saying, hey, 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 nice to meet you. Welcome. I say, hey, I say, hey, my name's Robin. Nice to meet you. And Alex says, hey, Robin, uh, good to meet you too. He goes, actually, um, we went to seminary together. I go, really? Where'd you go to seminary? Right? Because I go, Westminster Escondido, because I went to two different campuses. He goes, no, Westminster Philadelphia. I was like, are you sure? I was like, when did you start? He's like, 2004. I was like, yeah, that's when I started. And I was like, man, I feel so bad. You know, I got a concussion. My brain doesn't work and I forget things and, you know, that's fine. He's like, yeah, yeah, no problem. And so we go sit down. Worship's about to start. And it's like, you know, when you get a truck, you're like, gong, 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 gong. you're like trying to get it started and it finally catches and it starts going. It's like my brain needed a little startup and we're worshiping and we're singing songs. I was like, wait a minute, I totally remember this guy. I remember who we used to hang out with, we used to sit in class together. I turned around the middle of the service, I go, Alex, I totally remember you, so my bad. So if I recall correctly, he was a really good student, he was really smart, hung out with all the smart guys, so I'm excited to have him. me off. Okay, come on up, Alex. Thanks, Robin, I have to say that is a, uh fantastic ministry strategy. <laughs> I forgot. I have a concussion. <laughs> Gotta remember that one. Are we okay? I'm, I got some feedback. Okay now? If you have a Bible, um, you can turn to the first Psalm, Psalm chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I'm just going to pray really quickly for... Uh, our time this morning. Lord, thank you for the ways that you have shown yourself this morning that we have been able to hear about you, uh, learn and be challenged, and receive Jesus. Uh, as we look at your word, would you uh, help us? Uh, help this time from your word to be alive and to be real. Use this time in the, through the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. So this is somewhat of a familiar text. This is the first psalm. The author says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. So there's some things that we sang this morning already. Uh, that nothing can keep us from being washed away by Jesus. Which means that you should not feel guilty about anything in your life right now. Uh, we just heard an amazing uh, description and challenge on fostering and the idea of adoption, which comes to us in the form of the gospel to say that you are given a new identity. 
to be known, no matter your background, no matter what family experience you've had, whether that was broken, whether you had a parent who hurt you, whether you have children that are difficult to relate to, there is an identity beyond this life and beyond sort of our normal human experience that can cement you to go out not to need but to love in life. But how often do those experiences actually show up on day-to-day living? It, it, it feels foreign, doesn't it, it in normal day-to-day life? It feels like those realities which we sing and we read about and we are told about that are so rich, they feel often distant in the midst of day-to-day life. Why don't they stick? Because it is a humongous problem for us. You know, for many people today, if the Christian life uh, isn't practical, there's no point to it. I talk to a lot of students and a lot of people who say, I tried that and it didn't work. And what they mean is all the things that we sing about, all the things that you tell me, all the things that I read in a book, none of it showed up in my life. And it's not just for a, tro- a problem for those of us who are trying to live the Christian life it's a problem for those on the outside wondering why you would even try it. Um, a couple of years ago in the Atlantic Monthly, there was an interview with uh, some young atheists. One kid said this. He said, Christianity is something that if you really believed it, it would change your life. And you would want to change the lives of others. I haven't seen too much of that. Why doesn't it stick? Why does it not work? I want to take this morning and I want to suggest there is a way to make it stick. And there's a way to make it work. We just haven't thought much about this lately in the church. Uh, For the longest time, that the church has said this. Here's how you make those amazing realities true in your daily life. It's through the work of prayer. And most particularly, prayer through the Psalms. Now, for for all of us in like 21st century life, that just sounds like... um, How unexciting. That's not new to me. That's not revelatory. Uh, I tried that. But the reason, this is what I wanted to say to you this morning, the reason it doesn't work for us, the reason prayer doesn't translate our life is because we don't couple it with the work of meditation. This is a fascinating word that is littered with the Psalms that you never read about in modern day evangelical literature. Uh, Last year, before the end of the school year, uh, USC has their baccalaureate service. And the keynote speaker was a guy named Pico Iyer, a former Pulitzer Prize winning author, wrote for Time Magazine, other such uh, periodicals. And he told a couple stories. One, he said he uh, left the city of Los Angeles. He just had to get out and went to the mountains about an hour north where he came upon a monastery. And when he got to the monastery, there was a man who greeted him. He was wearing long robes, long hair, long beard could barely see his face, carried his luggage in, was incredibly kind to him, walked with him to his cabin, took him in, talked to him. And as he realized, Iyer said, I realized this was my childhood hero, Leonard Cohen, who went on to tell him that he had gotten so busy and so overwhelmed in life and so drugged down by the worries and the idols of this world, he had to withdraw and get away, for, for, get away from life and meditate for a couple years. Uh, Iyer went further and told another story where he had lunch with Evan Williams, the co-founder of Twitter. And he said in their two-hour lunch, no less than a dozen times, Williams stopped him and said, how do you not meditate daily? 
like, this is the only way I know how to be a productive human being, how to be effective in my job, how to be a caring spouse and father. I went on and told students this. He said, you're graduating in life if your salary is huge but your mind is shaky, you're in trouble. But if your mind is strong, even if the economy collapses, your salary goes south, you can get by. It is far easier to remake your life when things are going well than when you're in the middle of crisis. It's only when we stop, step out of our lives, that we can take care, we can take stock of our lives. As I sat there and listened to him, I was stunned how profound some of the truths that he was mentioning were and how often I never hear Christians talk about this. How we never enter into this language. How we have lost this practice that began in the church through the scriptures. But often when you bring this up, when I talk to you about the idea of of bringing in daily meditation in your life, our first reaction to that is, that sounds great, but I'm too busy. That's the new water cooler conversation of 2016. Do you know this? It used to be when you met someone and you said, hey, how are you? People used to say, I'm good. Now you meet somebody and you say, how are you doing? They say, I'm busy. Which just means that we need this more than ever. Maybe in the history of the universe. We are so stressed out. We are so busy. We can't not have some sort of daily practice that reminds us of what what is real. That implants to us what is true. That tells you what has happened in this world. That means you can go out into your daily life and live significantly different. And the Bible puts it simply this way. It's through the work of meditation. So here's what I want to do. I want to take you sort of on a a crash course of meditation through this psalm, reflecting on five things. The promise of meditation, the object of meditation, the method of meditation, the pattern, and the power. So the promise, the object, the method, the pattern, and the power. First, the promise of meditation. Look what he says sort of in the brackets of this psalm, verse 1 and verse 6. He says, Blessed is man who walks in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Then in verse 6, For the, uh, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So throughout this psalm, the psalmist sort of pair, uh, puts two groups of people together, the righteous and the wicked. And if that language troubles you or bothers you in any way, please just calm down. He's not sort of giving some sort of moral or ethical characterization here. But the psalmist only understands uh, sort of two groups of people in the world. And that's those who have God in the center of their life and those who don't. And so he's talking about uh, people who live with God in the center of their life and people that l- do not live with God in the center of their life. And it's, it's important to note this, that the psalmist does not have a category uh, for Christianity the way that we do. Because uh, you ask the typical person today, are you a Christian? And what they, if they say yes or no, what they, what they mean by that is, that's how I would answer the question, do I believe in God? I would, I would check that box, the Christian box. And, I, and there's an often we give a category that's like, I, I, I believe in Christianity, but I haven't been living much of that lately. But the psalmist doesn't have that category. That's something sort of we created in Western Enlightenment thinking. The psalmist only understands, do you live as a Christian 
Do you live with God in the center of your life or do you not? Those are the two categories he has for life. Not just what you think, but do you live? And he says the person who lives with God in the center of their life is because they meditate. This is the normal pattern of life. R.C. Sproul, great quote in one of his works, he says, the mark of a godly person is not that they go to church day and night, not that they sing day and night, not that they witness day and night, but that they meditate on God's law day and night. It is the normal pattern of faith, according to this psalm. So what does it mean to meditate? Uh, This is a great quote by one author. He said, meditation is the act of feeding the mind in such a way that it descends into the heart until the truth catches fire in your life. That is, it is the patient practice of taking the truths of God and planting roots so down deep into your heart that, God can th- that life can throw you anything and you're still okay. So look, look, this picture is that you get the realities of God so deep into your life that anything can come and it doesn't make life like this. It makes life like this. Let me show you what I mean from the text. Positively speaking, look in verse 3. He says, this is the person who meditates. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. He says, the person who does this, who has this daily practice in their life, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. That is, his, he is like a tree that has hit well water. You know what a tree that has well water is? is It means it's not dependent upon rain. It's not dependent upon external circumstances for it to flourish. Here's the 21st century life, is that our weeks and our emotions go as our circumstances go. If work goes well, we're doing well. If relationships go well, we're doing well. If money's going well, we're doing well. If those things are bad, it feels like life is in the dumps, Life is hard. We lack joy. We lack charity. We lack kindness. We lack mercy. We don't have any eye for justice. But he's saying the person who has this in their life, they're like a tree, not dependent upon rain, but planted in a stream of water, which means it doesn't matter how life is going. They're always green. They're always flourishing. They're always doing well. The person who who is a tree planted by streams of water has the love of God so deep into their life that somebody can reject them and they're still okay. And they're still full of joy. Somebody who is planted like a tree in streams of water is so firmly convinced of the sovereignty of God that life circumstances can go in 90 degree directions and there's no anxiety. Because what they have is the truths of God are not just things that they know and they sing about, but they show up when life matters because they're not just up there in the sky. They're planted deep down into the soul. Look negatively to show you this even deeper. Look in verse 4. He says, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So what this is saying is you can believe that Christianity is true. But if you don't have something like meditation in your life, what this means is you're like chaff in the wind. 
You know, e- even a balloon, if, if you, something as frail as a balloon, if you tie it to a post, when wind and storms come, it's going to flap every which way. And it may have some trouble, but it will not, it will not leave. <laughs> it will stay. And so this is saying, look, if you don't have this in your life, you can say Christianity is true, but when hard things come, those realities will float away, and they will quickly be distant from your life, and it may lead you to the point where you go, is this even worth having in my life at all? Because it makes the least amount of sense when anxiety is prevalent, or when guilt is overwhelming us, when life is in the face. But it's saying, if you don't have this, you will be blown away. And these, these metaphors given to us, like a tree with streams of water and wind, are meant to be very normal, practical illustrations. Because the idea is this, drought and storms and wind are coming in life. If they're, if they're coming in 2016, and like a marathon, we can't just show up and expect to make it. And so we can either prepare now or be told we will be blown away. This this is the hardest thing this morning, and I want to be very careful about this, because I don't know what you have been through in 2016. But some of us haven't had the hardest emotions in life that we will have. Some of us in this room have greater wisdom than others, where you have been through the deepest, realest parts of life. And you said goodbye to some people who you were not ready for them to die yet. Or you have been relocated in a place you never thought you would live. Or you've lost a job you never thought you would lose. There's a lot of us in this room who naively have not stepped into that yet. And you know something that we don't know. And it's that we can't just show up to those emotions and think it's going to be a happy smile. But what Psalm 1 is telling you is that if you will begin to plant yourself deep into the heart of God so that those realities are not just things around you, but they're planted deep within, then you can be green and prosper in all of those circumstances. Let me give you a story of where I've seen this before. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, an amazing amazing man in history, if you haven't heard of him, he was a pastor during the Nazi regime, and he was in jail because of his rejection of that leadership, and he was condemned to die and knew his death was fatal when the last attempt on Hitler's life failed. So when he was told that 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 failure had happened, he said this, he said, I have thrown myself completely into the arms of God. Now there is nothing to fear in life. Listen to William Damon author commenting on Bonhoeffer saying that in the end of his life. This, this, is, this is what it means to be a tree planted by streams of water that flourishes in every season. Listen to this. He says, Bonhoeffer possessed the calm of the mystic from the experience of the ultimate. As his execution drew near, he amanted calm, was cheerful, ready to respond to a joke, and apparently carefree. On the way to his death, his certain execution, he was ready to respond to a joke. Do you know what Psalm 1 is telling you? It's saying that could be you. That could be you in your life. 
No more life like this that just feels so volatile that you don't want to continue in the circumstances you're in. But it's saying you could be planted in such a way that whatever 2016 or 17 may come, you could be ready to respond to a joke. That's what it's promising you. That's the promise. Secondly, the object of meditation. Look what he says back in verse 2. He says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It says his delight is in the law of the Lord. Okay, what is the law of the Lord? The law of the Lord is just an Old Testament idiom for the entire Bible. It just means that the person who meditates, the person who prospers, has an object of meditation that is the Scripture. It is someone whose life is immersed in, who reads and knows and has their life evoking Scripture all of the time. Now, this, this means Christian meditation is extremely different from Eastern meditation. Uh, if you know anything about Eastern meditation, the, the, the main philosophy is that you are to empty your mind, clear your mind, remove any thoughts, remove any bad thoughts at all in life. But this form of meditation is saying not clear your mind, but fill your mind, dump it full of truth, have tons of information, be processing realities given to you, not from your daily experience, but realities given you from an eternal word of God. Listen to uh, the, these, two, these two quotes that sort of reinforce this. One old and one new. Thomas Watson, if we are to learn to commune with our Lord, it must be done with the discipline of prayer and meditation. The Hebrew word for meditate means to be inordinately intense in the mind. But the biblical authors never mention such a practice apart from the only object with which it must be done, namely the scriptures. For meditation without reading is wrong and bound to error, but reading without meditation is barren and fruitless. And a little bit uh, newer, listen to Eugene Peterson. This is such a unique, uh, illustrative way to talk about this truth. He says, because we learned language so early in our lives, we have no memory of the process and would therefore imagine that it was we who took the initiative to learn how to speak. However, that is not the case. Language is spoken into us. We learn language only as we are spoken to. We are plunged at birth into a sea of language. Then slowly, syllable by syllable, we acquire the capacity to answer. Mama, papa, bottle, blanket, yes and no. None of these words were, was a first word. All speech is answering speech. We were all spoken to before we spoke. We must therefore never cease plunging ourselves into the scriptures and letting the overwhelming previousness of God's speech for our prayers and thoughts. They're both saying this. If you want to learn how to speak, i.e. you want to learn how to navigate life, you can't speak first and expect to make sense of it, but it's got to be God who is the author of reality and the author of life speaking life and reality into you. And like a baby, you learn to say it back. It must be that. I had a student at USC who uh, is from Palo Alto and went to Gunn High School. If you know anything about Gunn High School, uh, a year and a half ago, they had a string of eight suicides from spring break until graduation of kids uh, who sadly killed themselves because they did not get into the college that they wanted to get into. And so the student told me that the school immediately instituted a morning uh, period of meditation. And so I said, well, what did you meditate about? 
What did you think about it? He said, they just told us to think about good thoughts. Good thoughts. And I said, this was just an honest conversation with him. And I said, how helpful was that? He said, and we both agreed on this, it was better than nothing. But he said, I realized this, that thinking and trying to fill my mind on good thoughts was not compatible with the world I lived in. That was an 18-year-old profound kid. Because if you just try, this is an interesting reality. You, do you know this? You already meditate. Like we, we, meditation is not just a foreign Eastern ancient practice that we have just lost. I mean, how much of your life is filled with fantasy? Or how much of your life is filled with um, sort of dreamlike thinking? Like imagining yourself to be in this situation. Or imagining if this were true, how much better in life would be. I mean, that's what meditation is. But he and I concluded this. If that's all we sort of fill our mind with is fantasy... That on the one hand, we will inevitably imagine a life void of pain and suffering. That's where we'll go. That means we will never be equipped to deal with the winds and storms of life that are inevitably coming. Then on the other hand, if left to ourselves to only think good thoughts, we will imagine a God, if you think about a God, who only exists to meet our desires and needs in life. And when those desires and needs are not met, he is a stingy God who does not love us, and we become bitter and cynical towards him. See, it is only the scriptures that will give you a reality, a real view of this world, and a God who is more real than your imagination, both of which can cement you to go into life and prepare for anything that may come. Because the scriptures won't just give you thoughts. They will implant realities deep into your soul so that you can face and do anything. That's the object of meditation. Thirdly, the method of meditation. Look again in verse 2. It says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night. So we're sort of given, um, if you want to think linguistically about this, two participles, meditation and delight. That These are sort of the bracket things of what it means to actually make this practice something in your life. So I want to use those two things, and I'll, this is, I'll just give you an outline. This is the most practical thing I'll say to you. So if you uh, want some notes to take home, here's how, here's how you can begin to meditate unto delight. You think out, you dig in, and you talk up. You think out, you dig in, and you talk up. You think out. He says, on his law, he meditates day and light. The, word for, the Hebrew word for meditate, which Thomas Watson already told us, means to inordinately think, to give intense thought. So what you would do is you take a text in Scripture, and you begin to study it, and you try to objectively make sense of what is the nature of God's love in this passage? What promises are true? What do I learn about the person of Jesus or the, or the inheritance of the kingdom that is real. You try to, first of all, look deeply into something that is real about this world that is given to us by God and his character. And we think deeply on that. And you try to maybe even examine what, what is this teaching? How does this change the world? But once you have thought out 
and you begin to make sense of like one concrete reality that you now have in life, you begin to dig in. And what it means to dig in is you, you take that concrete reality, you take that truth, and you go, what does it mean for my life now that this is real? What does it mean now for me to live in this world knowing that this thing is true? Because it says, he medit- his delight is in the law of the Lord and on, because he meditates on it, which means when you begin to meditate, it ought to take you to delight, and you don't stop until you delight. And the Hebrew word for delight is a word that means to count up your money. It's a monetary term. It means to feel rich. And, and just as a little side note here, do, do you know rich is, is just a relative term that we use? I mean, all of us in this room are filthy rich compared to 90, 90% of the world. Now, and all of us, well, I don't know in this room, but... Most, not, most of us are not rich at all when you compare it to Beverly Hills. Because rich is just, it just means you have more than the next person. And, and we are caught up in the idolatry and the foolishness of thinking rich is a monetary reality. But if you think about like, what makes you rich in this world, if there really is a God and the kingdom is really here and glory is really coming and this world really will be renewed, and all that we crave and long for in this world really is coming, then that's richer than anything else in this world if you live your life in light of that. But what this text is saying is that when you begin to dive into the Scripture and find a concrete reality, and then you take it to yourself and say, what does it mean that I'm completely forgiven? What does it mean that it's all paid for? You begin to do that until... Things in your life that you're ashamed to bring up. Things that you, 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 you just don't even want to tell your spouse or your best friend or your, even your counselor that feels safe. You do that until that forgiveness rings true to the point where you feel rich. Where Jesus' words, go and sin no more, aren't just cool things we hear and sing about but are words of freedom that separate you from most people in this world where you do not live clinging to their opinion and their approval of you, but because the approval and the reality of Jesus is not just something of a song, but it's approval and reality for you in your daily circumstances to go and sin no more. And when you are doing that, you start to feel rich and it's starting to get roots down into your heart. I'll give you an example of how I did this one time in life. When my wife, my wife and I were dating, I was in South Africa for a whole semester and a half uh, studying. And this was um, late 90s where uh, email still felt difficult to, uh, to find a computer. Um, the only way to call was to get one of those like Walmart phone calls, you know, that had 37 numbers that you had to dial just to get out of the country. And it was like, uh, you could talk for four minutes for $50. So we just wrote letters. We just wrote letters back and forth. And, uh, and it would take like two weeks to get a letter back and forth. And so uh, I would get these letters from her, and it would, it would be like two weeks old. But in, in the letters, I remember she would say things, because we, we were in that dating phase. You know, it, it's not like the married phase where I'm just updating you on the circumstances of the kids. 
But it was a dating phase of, I'm thinking about you. I miss you. I'm doing this. I wish you were here. I can't wait till you get back. And I remember I would take a letter from her, and I would read it, and then I would reread it, and then I would reread it. And, and it was like, I mean, you know how I felt. The, the phrases of, I miss you, I'm thinking about you, it's like I would reread those because of what they did to my heart. I felt rich. Rich in a way that I remember going out into my, my school day, just not walking through people hoping I could win people's attention because I had somebody's attention that I wanted in this world. That's what it means to meditate unto delight. Do you ever do that with God's word? Because the realities and promises in there are so much more significant than a love letter from a spouse because they can never change. They can never be taken from you. They can never be given into anything else but unto grace through you. That's meditation under light. You, you think out, you dig in, and then you have to talk up. That is, you begin to speak those truths back to God. Martin Luther has an incredible essay on prayer where he, uh, he goes through and he talks to his barber about what it means to pray. You can just read the end of it. But at the end of it, he says, you know, if you uh, are meditating and going through Scripture, it, it's, it's pointless unless you begin to talk those things that you now know are true for your life back to God. You know, it's kind of like, you know, when you, you think about something that you want to change in life, it becomes really real when you come to your friend or your spouse and say, hey, I'm thinking about quitting my job. It's like you've thought about that for a while, but until you say that out loud to somebody, it's almost not real yet. That's what Luther means. And so when you have this reality of what you know to be true now for your life, you take that and you, then you begin to pray that back to God. And it is through that work that the roots are being planted. That's the method of meditation. So there's the promise, the object, the pattern, the method, excuse me, the method and then the pattern. He said, on his law, he meditates day and night. This is quickle. But we ought to take that literally. When he says day and night, we, we probably ought to think about that as in we need a bracket on our day to remind us what is true and what is real in the world. I mean, often we, we use our phone or our computer first thing in the morning and last thing at night which is just a pattern of feeding realities into us. But our hearts are so feeble. Our minds are so frail. We're so prone to wonder to everything that will throw love at us. We need bracket reminders that sort of frame this for us. And, and the good thing that the church has done for centuries is provided resources for us to do this. You know, the Book of Common Prayer is a fantastic resource that will give you scripture readings morning and evening in order to go through the day and sort of have a guided way of, of filling your life with the realities and promises of God. There's all sorts of uh, resources I'm sure Robin and Jason could give you that you could go through that would give you bracket parts of your day. And if, if that overwhelms you, let me, let me say two practical things for that. One, um, when, you, when we meditate on Scripture unto delight, you need to know that often we don't feel amazing afterwards. You know, it, it's not like a date with Jesus 
where you come home giddy. Sometimes there are those inordinate moments like William Guthrie talks about that are like a beam of glory. But not every time. But think about this the way you would exercise. You know, the way we want to do exercise in America is we want to figure out, okay, I look like this, but I want to look like this. How do I do that in 30 days? Look, this practice is not going to change your soul in 30 days. And you know, in that 30-day program of exercise hardly ever works. There's sad stories of that relapse. But what does work is committing to a new lifestyle of just three to four days you know, a week at the gym, eat differently. Because in that lifestyle, you know, if you miss a day, it's not going to set you back forever. But if you don't go for six to eight months, you're going to feel very different. Likewise with this. We have days where morning and evening meditation is, is just not going to be a part of our life. And there's no guilt in that. And there is no reason to think you are, you're going to fall off the wagon and, and begin to lose the realities of God. But if we don't do this for like eight to nine months, your soul and your heart will feel very different. But I, I promise you, you begin to do this. There aren't many days where you go, I know I'm changing. I can feel it. But a year and a half from now, I'll see you and you'll see me. And the resurrection of Jesus will mean a whole lot more to you then than it does right now. If we begin to do morning and evening, day and night, on his law we meditate. That's the pattern. Lastly, the power. How do we begin to do this? Look what he says in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. That is, how do we make this a blessing? How does this not something that's just overwhelming or, or another Christian practice that just feels like a busy life? Because the man who does this is blessed. And the word blessed there, it, it means the one who lives a whole life. It, the one who lives life as it was designed to be. How do we begin to do that? Look in verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here's how it becomes blessing. You see, there is a way for us to do meditation that is actually not Christian. There's a way to go into the Bible that's actually not really Christian. And it's, it's the way. See, the Lord knows it's not just your practices. It's the way we do our practice. You see, the person who, who lives like God is not in the center of their life can still go to Scripture, but they will go hoping to get blessing. But the righteous go to the Scriptures because they're blessed. See, if you go out hoping to get blessing, hoping God will show you more favor, hoping he will show you more love, if you begin to do this, then every trial in your life will be a double trial. Because not only will you be going through the hard thing you're going through, you'll be wondering when you're going through that hard thing, does God still love me? Has he brought this in my life because I have not been doing this enough, because I have not been faithful enough. But if the gospel is the paradigm through which you go into this, that means whenever something hard goes on in your life, you know God has brought this in my life. There is a purpose and reason which I can't see, but I know this is not here because he's mad at me. 
Because all of that has been paid for on the cross and has been rebirthed in the resurrection to know that everything he's doing is shaping me to be more like Jesus. But it must be out of blessing and not in order to get blessing. And how do you know that you have that blessing? Because we have one who never walked in the counsel of the wicked, who never sat in the seat of scoffers, who only his thoughts were on God's law, and he meditated morning, day, and night when life was going well and when they dragged him to the cross. And his name is Jesus. Hebrews 10.5 says this, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. There were 1,800 verses that Jesus spoke, 180 of them were scripture quotations, just quoting scripture. He was saturated in scripture. He spoke it, he breathed it, he prayed it all day long. When they cut him on the cross, he quoted scripture. There's an amazing place where we learn that if you meditate on the the hero of the scripture, this is what will plant your heart. And this is what we should set your, set your heart on fire. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, everyone's depressed. They're all sad because they think Jesus, this person who we put all our eggs in his basket, we were so sure he was going to make everything right. He was going to heal everything. And they killed him. And it feels like the mission is over. And it feels like the plan is over. It feels like everything is over. And they're on this... Uh, road walking and they're sad and depressed and they don't know it's Jesus he's been raised from the grave and he comes to them and says what's the matter almost kind of playing like an unfair game and they say don't you know what's been going on and and Jesus says hold on you have no idea don't you understand that this was going to be the story that he was going to be killed and then he was going to be raised again and they're just and they're still confused and it says in beginning with Moses and the prophets In all the scriptures, he opened up and taught the scriptures concerning himself. Which means, here's what Jesus did. He opened up the Old Testament and did a Bible study after Bible study with them, showing, don't you know the story of David? That I'm the real David. That I overcome the real Goliath of sin and death. Don't you understand that I'm the real Moses, who is going to lead God's people forever out of slavery, forever out of bondage? Don't you understand that I'm the real Isaac, that I'm the one who was brought up on the altar, who was going to make the promises of God permanently come true through my provision. And then he goes away. And they're almost left stunned, and they're almost left confused. And they turn and said, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened up the scriptures and meditated with us on himself? Look, here's what what will change your life. That's a big phrase, and I I stand by that. This is what will change your life. You begin to read and pour your heart into Scripture, seeing Jesus as the hero. And he is sufficient enough to meet all your needs in life, and he is satisfying enough to give you everything your soul craves for. Come to him, plant yourself in him, that you may be a tree planted by streams of water. Let me pray for us.
Jesus, these are amazing promises. And the Christian life is uphill. And so we need your spirit both to meet us when we study your word and to give us the discipline and the strength to begin to do this. Stay not far away from us, O Lord, but make these realities, things not just that we sing, but truths we live by. In the power of the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.